As our world becomes more globalized, perhaps one of the most important and challenging issues is how do we see the stranger, the other, the person who is different from me, or the tribe or community of which I am a part. How we understand the answer to that question has huge implications for how our faith traditions are lived out. Major surgery, four sides of the tent, sheep and goats, and more. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. we might just sort of dive on into a discussion about who is the stranger or the foreigner among us and what do our texts teach us about how we're to treat that individual or those persons in our midst. And this is a, uh, first it's a matter of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there are a couple of things that I, I want to say. The, the standard terms in Hebrew are uh, ger, which means someone who resides with you. If you ask somebody where they live in Hebrew, you don't say where they chai, chayim, because wherever you're alive, you're alive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you ask them where they reside, mm-hmm. and the word is gar, and the gar is to reside, and a ger is somebody who resides with you. Then you have the word nochri, which means somebody who's not you. Mm-hmm. And then you have, not, not just not you yourself, but not you, part of your not people. Not like you, not part of your tribe. Not part of your tribe. And then you have the word czar, which means foreign. A foreigner. So those three words, but most of these are statements we're going to be reading from the Hebrew Bible today, they all use the word ger, someone who resides with you. And it comes back to the statement that is mentioned over and over and over again. Ki gerim hayitem be'eretz mitzrayim. You were gerim, you were resident aliens in Egypt. And mm. you know what it means to be treated like a resident alien. So we want you to be better in the way you treat right. resident aliens right. in your country. Don't forget where you're from. Don't, Don't forget, forget your what story, you what you went through to come here. And and we should know, I think, in ancient Israelite culture and also just ancient, ancient Mesopotamian and um, Babylonian culture, in that world and time frame, there was this concept of the Beit Av, the house of the father. Mm-hmm. And anyone who didn't have a Beit Av lived in a precarious, marginalized position of society. Because if you didn't have a bait of in your context, then that meant that if you were out and about and somebody decided to harm you, there was nobody to bring any retribution. So you wanted to be able to go with the concept of your father's house. This is what makes Abraham so courageous because he leaves all of the security of his bait of all of the protection that a bait of gives him. And he steps outside of that and goes and follows God in Genesis 12, such courage to go and be a stranger in a strange land himself as, as he sort of strikes out on his own. Uh, when we find that people aren't part of a bait of that, they don't have a house of a father. They are without a social structure of protection. Without so, an economic support. Right. So we're talking about the poor, the orphan, the, the widow. widow, people that don't have a house of a father to reside in that can care for them. They are now outside of the protection of the normative social uh, protection. So what, so at that point, then, what does God have to say to those people? And it turns out that in both of our texts and traditions, God is very concerned about this group of persons, the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, or the resident alien in a land. We have that in Exodus 21, 22, and we have it in Deuteronomy 24 over and over and over again, where the widow and the poor and the orphan and the resident alien are lumped together as the people who would be most hurt by 
practices that were deprived of them of the living of what they need right um and also uh, if you have uh the, we have the story of ruth coming mm-hmm. back from mm-hmm. moab she was not an israelite she wasn't a judean she wasn't anything she came back with her mother-in-law but specifically she was taken care of mostly by boaz i think Question to say whether or not he had his eye on her right away, or what? He's he was righteous. A, he he, d- he lets her glean. He doesn't cut the corners of his field. That's and, right. Yeah, and and the story Christians care a lot about because this is the line of David, which brings us Jesus. And so um, we we know the story of Ruth quite well because we we like to talk about this this concept of of following back Jesus's lineage. Um, I, I think when we talk through our texts and we we think about. How does our text teach us to deal with and help with the stranger? God is very concerned with this marginalized group. God is worried over and over again for how they'll be functioning within the society. Um, it's repeated numerously. It's it's not just in Exodus. It's also in Leviticus. It's also in Deuteronomy. Then there's other rules, right? Like don't cut the corner of your field and let the poor have some dignity. And so there's other social safety nets that God is putting into place. It's really the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the sin of that community is to not Uh, take care of the stranger in their midst. These men come in, they are angels, uh, messengers from God, and they come on in. and, And God is so concerned and upset because this is the type of community that will just only abuse and harm and hurt. Um, these people that are coming in rather than offering the protection required for those that are strangers. As a matter of fact, when you say Sodom, most people think of sodomy and as a sexual sin. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, you have that issue, but the thing that was most difficult, uh, was their treatment of people that came in from other places. And so when, uh, God is talking to Abraham after having revealed that he was going to have a son and all these things, he says, it's a, in, my, in my rabbinical school, we had to learn a verse a week in Hebrew, memorize it. <laughs> and this was, mm-hmm. that is, I will go down and I will see for myself whether what I'm hearing there, right. the cry that's coming out of that city right. is true. And so how does God do that? And I, I thought hakatakata was a great that's word. a very nice. It's a great, great word. <laughs> very but anyway, good yeah. But God goes down and puts God's self in jeopardy right. in the guise of the two angels who go down there. Because in, originally, uh, Abraham sees three men, it says, mm-hmm. but he calls them God. Mm-hmm. And then it says the two angels went to Sodom and then Lot saw them as men. Right. So the people didn't know they were angels. Right. God just went down in the human guise to see what would happen because before God blitzed them, God wanted to make sure they were deserving of being blitzed. Right. And so it was a, a legal trial. But the thing was, their sin was the refusal to accept people from other places as the hospitality of as good manners, as being a human being, a mensch and it's would a, require. It's a good mensch, right? And yeah. it's an exact opposite and contrast to the scene just before where Abraham, having just had a major surgery, right, <laughs> is sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of the day, sees these strangers from a long way off and jumps up and runs and insists that they come in, which comes that, that nice sort of... Um, uh, euphemism to say all four sides of my tent are open because the rabbis talked about how Abraham was so hospitable to strangers that he would open up all four sides of his tent in order to be to ensure that he could welcome them from the north and the south and the east and the west. And that was a rabbinic 
extension of what's it's not in the text text, but they but they but it's a nice picture that would be the way that you should act right and so it's it's upheld from the very beginning in our text in genesis right and then we also in uh, the christian text in the new testament in the book of hebrews chapter 13 there's a mention of this don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it and it's definitely a reference back to this story with Abraham and then Lot, right? That Abraham is the type of righteous one, and he's in this um, cons- this context where he can welcome these strangers in. And then Lot and in Sodom, things are different. And the prophets will talk about this, and they'll say that the sin of Sodom, I think it's Ezekiel, says that the sin of Sodom was the lack of care and concern for the stranger. And the, the fact is that a lot of people think that the symbol of Judaism is a, is a six-pointed star. But it's not that that has become the jewelry version. But the um, the real symbol is a menorah, mm-hmm. the menorah that was in the temple, seven branched, and it is because it is bringing light to the right. world. And God says to through Isaiah, uh, be a light to the nations right. and bring the poor, bring the the prisoners out of prison. Make sure that you bring them to mm-hmm. the light. Mm-hmm. And so it's was very significant to all of so many ancestors of the Jewish communities in America. The, uh, the light on top of the Statue of Liberty, hmm. which reflected hmm. our understanding of the, the goal of bringing light, the light of freedom, hmm. specifically from Isaiah. That's what mm-hmm. that is, freedom mm-hmm. and liberty, mm-hmm. be a light to the nations. And then you have the uh, Emma Lazarus's poem, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, you need to breathe free, there as well, which is the statement of America's role as has been so long for a couple hundred years now to let people come in. That doesn't mean that uh, when we get here that we're everybody loves us. Right. Every every single group that came in had some kind of friction. But the goal was to be stronger by the Americanism of bringing everybody together. We're we're not a, a nation based on one peoplehood. We're a nation based on everybody who wants to come and do this thing with us. Right, right. Well, and and in both of our faith traditions in Judaism and in Christianity, this concept of hospitality to the stranger is very solid. It's at the core of our identity. You were once strangers like this. Treat this group of persons, the way that you would like to be treated. And God seems to emphasize this so much and so frequently, right? It's He gets angry when the Israelites aren't doing it well, when they have a king on the throne, when there's an abuse of power. And it's always the measurement of like, do I want your sacrifices? I'm not, I don't care about those. Where's your justice? Where's your concern for the widow, for the poor, for the orphan, for the stranger? God is always looking at his people that he's called to be a light. And if these things aren't in order then it is clear all of the society is in chaos. That's right. So as a matter of fact, one of the things that surprises people when they look at the Bible is that non-Jews were welcome to offer sacrifices in the temple the same way as Jews. And, and, the, and the Torah goes to great lengths to say, Torah hat, one law. It's just, just one regulation. Mm-hmm. Do, just mm-hmm. do it the same way. You're not different. You mm-hmm. want to do it, you do it the same way everybody else does. And it says one law, one law over over and over again. One law for that, one teaching for that, and one law for all people. That is, everybody has the same laws. The non-Jews are not required to do Jewish ritual laws. But when they do, 
they're welcome to do it in the There's same way. There's a whole way. court for them. That's right. And it's the largest one. The largest court that we have at the temple is the court of the nations, of the Gentiles, and they're invited in. And that is the understanding that, that we all grew up with. We have all these sections, especially in Deuteronomy 24, where it says don't uh, reap your harvest too much. Go, don't go back and get right. it if you, if you drop it. You've got to leave it for the, the gear, the resident alien, the orphan, the widow, so the God, your God will bless you in everything you do. And when you beat your olive tree, let the things remain for the orphan and mm-hmm. the widow and the resident alien. And the same thing goes on for picking grapes. And it actually puts the gear first and then the orphan and then the widow. Um, and uh, these are all people that don't have visible means of support. They don't have extensive family connections. And so they need to go on and, uh, and, and make a case for going out of our way to leave these things for them. Right. It's a really interesting, even when you go back and you think about this concept of Beit Av, of House of the Father, that God looks at the people that don't have that in their day-to-day life, and then he treats them, though, as though they're in his house and he is their father, right? This is how, in my family, you will treat one another, and even those that you might perceive to be marginalized on the outside, we're going to bring them close. We're going to make sure that they're taken care of. We're going to bring them into the center of our community. And there's so much of our own humanity that is wrapped up in that, right? It's not just the humanity and the dignity that we need to recognize in the person who is the other and not like us. It is also that when we treat them with that type of love and care and respect, our own humanity is brought forth and our own identity is remembered again. We belong to God. We are citizens in this kingdom, not pharaohs. We remember that what it was like when we were treated in a different order when we didn't have a bait of, didn't have a house of the father, and now we have the house of our father. And now we're going to live a different way. That's one of the wonderful things that I've explored when I've gone around the world and seen people. They, When people see that you're not wh- who they are, right. they still often, most often, reach out to you and help you. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, your faith in the image of God in which we are created is reaffirmed. Right, right. Because people who are good at that really are the best people. They're the best representation of what this whole humanity is about, is to reach out to people and to help them any way you can. Right. I mean, I realize there are limits to how much people can help. But to the extent that you can... As one of the, if we um, all did what we could... Right? That's the, right. The world would be quite lovely. When I grew up, we didn't have a whole lot, and nor did much of our family, but we shared. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father broke his leg, and he was a he had no visible means of support. He was a salesman on his own. Uh, people came over, and you know they brought stuff to eat for as long as it took him to get back on his feet, literally. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of a, a of a reaching out and sharing, even among people who don't have much, is actually it's easier for people who don't have much to share. Right. Because they don't feel bound as much by what they own and everything we own. They're not trying owns to protect us. Right? They're not trying exactly. to protect anything. Right. right. And in uh, in Christianity, in the in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a story where Jesus um, sits down and he says, Well, you know, when the Son of Man comes again in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on the throne in heavenly glories. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he's going to separate the people, just as a separate shepherd separates sheep from goats. And and this story where Jesus, um, this passage that Jesus teaches, it's one of the few times we have in his teaching where he actually is going to say where people go and why. 
Um, later on, there will be development of a lot more theology about, you know, how do you get into heaven or how you can get to hell. And we can, that's a whole different conversation at some other point, and it involves the Apostle Paul quite a bit. But when you talk about just the Gospels, um, there's two places in particular. One is with a rich man um, and then a, a man named Lazarus who is poor, and the rich man doesn't take care of the poor and, and suffers not the best reward in the end, whereas Lazarus is brought to the bosom of Abraham. And then this story here, where then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you? in or needing clothes and clothes you when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you and the king will reply i tell you the truth whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine you did for me and then the opposite happens to the goats on the left so you definitely don't want to be the goat and you don't want to be on the left because he says the same thing you didn't do these things i was hungry you gave me nothing to eat i was a stranger you did not invite me in but they also say when when did we see you and he said whenever you did not do it for one of the least of these. And when we talk about this concept in all of our story for, for the Christian text from Genesis through Revelation, we see that God is deeply concerned about this particular group of people, people who are hungry, who are thirsty. We're talking about the poor, the naked, those that need to be clothed, the sick, those in prison, um, the hungry, the stranger, all of this, God is deeply concerned about. And Jesus grabs this ethic, echoes it, and actually says that we won't inherit eternal life unless we invite the stranger in. We, we tend to forget this passage. And it's also a matter of having no uh, ulterior motive. That is, right. it's one thing to say, okay, I, I want to invite all the strangers in because I want to convert them to whatever it is that I am. Right, right. And, and so, or because I want to you know, get brownie points, right? Yeah, yeah. These people are saying, when did we do that? They didn't know that they were doing it. That's the point. No, and, and that's the most important thing about it. So that um, people remember, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Not a great translation, but it, it basically means love somebody who's your kin, your rea, your friend, the people who are like you. And, 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 and it's very pithy. It, it could be everybody remembers, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. But at the end of chapter 19 of Leviticus, where you find that in verse 18 and verses 32 and 33, you find that um, it says one a non-Jew, when a resident alien comes to you in your land, don't harass him. You should consider this person to be like an Ezrach, a citizen, mm. a, a kinsperson, somebody who's part of you. Don't it's make so them, don't, don't do anything to hurt them. And right. that you should love them as you love yourself. So the same thing is said about somebody who's not you. Right, right. And and, and the question is, you, know, you can say, why is it at the end of the chapter instead of in the next to the <laughs> verse when it should have been there? You know, but it is. It, it's at the end of the chapter, and it precedes the verse. It says, don't have false weights. Hmm. Don't have false mm -hmm. measures. Mm -hmm. Don't do this. I actually saw a uh, grocer once put his thumb on a scale behind really? the counter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I won't say more about that. But anyway... <laughs> Um, the, the, and, and, and you can't do that. You have to treat right. everybody the right way. And, what, and the whole end of this whole chapter of Leviticus 19 ends up with having the right kind of weights. And how, why is that? And the answer 
that I like best, and I think it's right, is that if you don't know how far it is an inch, if you don't know how much a gram weighs, then how do you know how to treat people? Mm -hmm. If you Mm -hmm. don't even know the simplest physical measures, Mm. then how do you know the spiritual ones? Mm. You can't act correctly if you've got a ruler that's intentionally wrong. Oh, it's beautiful. And that whole passage, the whole chapter of Leviticus 19 is one of my favorites because there's these other beautiful things like in verse 14, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling stumbling block in front of the blind, blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. And the thing that I like about that is if you curse the deaf, who hears it? The deaf person doesn't. You hear it. Your community hears it, and your own humanity is diminished in your treatment of this individual. And, and God's concerned that even if their ears can't hear it, that they should not be spoken about in that way. And the same with the blind. The blind person probably is not going to, I mean, they're blind. They can't figure out who just did that to them. Nope. But God is concerned about the humanity of that individual as well as the humanity of his own people. And he gives very specific you know, instructions on these per- people groups that are marginalized. So whoever it is that we're talking about that is other or different from us or a stranger, that they are actually strange to us. And we talk about, do we like that word? Well, in some ways we don't like it, right? Because it's so off-putting of the individual. But in some ways it's good because it reminds us that even if we find that person strange, this is the command still. And Jesus actually, you know, gives us a huge increase in this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I want to be clear that there's nothing in Jewish teaching or tradition that says hate your enemy. That was something that the Essenes were doing, uh, community living in the north part of the Dead Sea. That's what we're normally doing. We all want to hate our enemies. Sure, it's easy. Um, But that framing, the phrase, you have heard it said, I just want to note that that's not actually in the Hebrew text anywhere. Um, but it was part of a one militant sort of zealot type group that was living apart during Jesus's day. But that concept that even if you have somebody you perceive to be an enemy, you are to love them too. I think what you said earlier, uh, that when you put a stumbling block before the blind or curse the death, what you're doing is demonstrating it for your family and for your community. Mm-hmm. That is, you're teaching them the wrong right, thing. Right. You're putting a stumbling block before them. They're the right, blinds. They're right. the ones that you're taking right. out that way. And so I, I think that what, he's, what Jesus is, you just quoted him saying, right. is that, where did you hear this? You heard it from everybody who's ever been hurt, hmm. who wants to hurt hmm. back. That's lovely. You don't have to get it from a specific sect right. or a specific text. Sure. You can just say, that's what everybody says. That's the, that's the, the kicking out of, right. of pain. Right. But don't do that. Right. Because right. the idea is to right. take the pain away. Right. Right. And how do you do that? Right. Right. There's a um, developmental stage that children are supposed to achieve somewhere between age five and age seven or eight. Um, and it's called reaction versus chosen response. And the reaction is, you know, the kid's Lego gets taken away in preschool and so they just kick their friend. Right. They, it's not even a thought. It's just they took my Lego and then they just kick. And we all sit down, we have nice, calm, loving conversations, and we try to talk about how we can achieve a different response. And this is the goal. Some, some adults have not yet achieved chosen response versus reaction, but we should all be working on it. Um, and it's easy for us to react. It's the first thing that we can do. What I think the Torah and the New Testament are requiring us to do is move to chosen response. And that's a sign of maturity. It's a sign of discipline. It's a sign of discipleship. 
And if I just want to reside in my reaction all the time, I can't call myself a disciple of Jesus. This isn't an easy thing to do. Love your enemy is not an easy thing to do. And in fact, at the end of this short passage, um, Jesus says, um, if you greet only your own people, like if, you know, the sun's falling on the righteous and the unrighteous, you have to be like God. So at the end, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What? That's not going to be possible. <laughs> you know, even if we try to rationalize and go, well, be, be complete, be whole That's in this like, response. Well, be holy because right? I'm holy, says God. Right, exactly. Right, I'm right. going to be holy like you. Right. No, I don't think I can get that. <laughs> exactly. Not in this life. Exactly. And that that be holy that because I am holy, that's throughout our epistles with Paul as well as throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. So I think, again, this is something we're aiming for, not something that we know that we'll achieve. We're always going to have to be working on these things. Yeah, the thing is... Um, when you talk about about people reacting and, and the kicking mm-hmm. out, I, my favorite, one of my favorite poems is when Moses gets very, very mad at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 33 and says, Jeshurun got fat and kicked. <laughs> and, and, the, and the thing is, we, the more we mm-hmm. have, the more we forget that right. we don't really right. own it. Right. And and the and the more we want to defend it, and and we get we move to the big house, and we leave our friends and family behind, mm-hmm. and we just start to kick, and and that would be just the response I think as uh, yeah. any established nation, especially in the Western world of richness, we get fat, we get ethnocentric, we kick, mm-hmm. and that's just gross. It was a yeah. Another thing is. Um, Back to Leviticus 19, right before it says, don't uh, love your neighbor as yourself, it says, don't hate your brother in your heart. Mm-hmm. Continually rebuke your fellow. Don't bear a sin because of him. And the question is, if you don't confront people, right. and, and, and the rabbis say there's a lot of training that goes on how to confront people right. regularly, right. You know, correctly, because but if you don't confront them with what they're doing wrong about this, mm-hmm. then you're going to be as guilty of the problem as they are. Right. And then it goes, don't take revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's an important learning, too, that you have to confront. And when you confront, you have to say it in words that they're going to hear. Right. And when you say things in words they're going to hear, you have to take their situation into account. There's a whole way to do that. You don't go, you right. You right. don't do that. That doesn't work. You we can't don't compound the sin. No. Right. As they used to teach my kids, you know, make an I statement. <laughs> when I see this happening, it really hurts me. <laughs> Whatever. Right. Or right. however you do it. Right. You, right. But you do it in a way that's, that's loving. And you don't have to diminish the humanity in the other no. person. And I love that that verse about how we rebuke, right, our neighbor comes right after the things about don't, perverting ju- don't pervert justice and don't put a stumbling block in front of the blinds. As though God knows, oh, and by the way, when you see somebody doing that... <laughs> <laughs> right. Here's how you go and approach them so you don't share in their guilt. So yeah. there's, there's one thing we should probably end up with, which is the, the, uh, the legend of Elijah. Uh, Elijah is the one who's going to har- be the harbinger right, of the Messiah, right. right? So the rabbis always say, you never know what Elijah looks like unless you really know Elijah. He's, uh, he's there and they, he may come in the guise of a beggar with leprosy, smelly homeless person, just person mm-hmm. that you don't even want to go near. And if you turn that away, you may be turning the whole new world away. Mm-hmm. That is, every single possible right. interaction we have with someone that's right. marginal in our idea right. could be an encounter with Elijah. Right. Well, and, and this is Matthew 25. This is what Jesus says, whenever you did or didn't do it, then that's what you did to me. 
So Christians have the same thing where we, but it's for the person of Jesus that we might have just met Jesus and we didn't love him, care for him, help him. Um, and there are so many places in both of our faith practices modernly where we're, there's communities that are just fully dedicated toward loving the poor, loving the stranger, loving the orphan, particularly when you're going into the developed world. And that type of love and compassion is something that I think is central and core to both of our religions. Uh, the book of James at the very, towards the end of the New Testament, this is Jesus's brother, Yaakov, and he says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is what our Father accepts as pure and faultless. Take care of the orphans and the widows. Jeremiah 22 says, you know, it's, are you a king to know me because you have more and more cedar? No. You're the king if you know and have taken care of the poor. What else is there to, but to know me if you've taken care of the poor? And this is how I want to live. This is my definition of of what I see my discipleship of Jesus to be, to try to love those who are in need. And to be welcoming, hospitable, and to go out of our way to do it. Amen. Amen. Amen.